Chapters 21 through 30 of Against Celsus, Book 1 by Origen, translated by Frederick Crombie. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain, read by David Ronald. The following is the view of Celsus and the Epicureans. Quote, Moses having, he says, learned the doctrine which is to be found existing among wise nations and eloquent men obtained the reputation of divinity. End quote. Now, in answering to this, we have to say that it may be allowed him that Moses did indeed hear a somewhat ancient doctrine and transmitted the same to the Hebrews, that if the doctrine which he heard was false and neither pious nor venerable, and if, notwithstanding, he received it and handed it down to those under his authority, he is liable to censure. But if, as you assert, he gave his adherence to opinions that were wise and true, and educated his people by means of them, what, pray, has he done deserving of condemnation? Would, indeed, that not only Epicurus, but Aristotle, whose sentiments regarding providence are not so impious as those of the former, and the Stoics, who assert that God is a body, had heard such a doctrine? then the world would not have been filled with opinions which either disallow or enfeeble the action of providence, or introduce a corrupt corporal principle, according to which the god of the Stoics is a body, with respect to whom they are not afraid to say that he is capable of change, and may be altered and transformed in all his parts, and, generally, that he is capable of corruption, if there be any one to corrupt him, but that he has the good fortune to escape corruption, because there is none to corrupt. Whereas, the doctrine of the Jews and Christians, which preserves the immutability and unalterableness of the divine nature, is stigmatized as impious, because it does not partake of the profanity of those whose notions of God are marked with impiety, but because it says in the supplication addressed to the divinity, quote, Thou art the same, end quote. It being, moreover, an article of faith that God has said, quote, I change not. End quote. After this, Celsus, without condemning circumcision as practiced by the Jews, asserts that this usage was derived from the Egyptians, thus believing the Egyptians rather than Moses, who says that Abraham was the first among men who practiced the right. And it is not Moses alone who mentions the name of Abraham, assigning to him great intimacy with God, but many also of those who give themselves to the practice of conjuration of evil spirits, employ in their spells the expression, quote, God of Abraham, end quote, pointing out by the very name the friendship that existed between that just man and God. And yet, while making use of the phrase, God of Abraham, they do not know who Abraham is. And the same remark applies to Isaac and Jacob and Israel, which names, although confessedly Hebrew, are frequently introduced by those Egyptians who profess to produce some wonderful result by means of their knowledge. The rite of circumcision, however, which began with Abraham and was discontinued by Jesus, who desired that his disciples should not practice it, is not before us for explanation, for the present occasion does not lead us to speak of such things, but to make an effort to refute the charges brought against the doctrines of the Jews by Celsus, who thinks that he will be able the more easily to establish the falsity of Christianity if, 
by assailing its origins in Judaism, he can show that the latter also is untrue. After this, Celsus next asserts that, quote, those herdsmen and shepherds who followed Moses as their leader had their minds deluded by vulgar deceits and so supposed that there was one God, end quote. Let him show, then, how, after this irrational departure, as he regards it, of the herdsmen and shepherds from the worship of many gods, he himself is able to establish the multiplicity of deities that are found amongst the Greeks or among those other nations that are called barbarian. Let him establish, therefore, the existence of Nemosyne, the mother of the Musas by Zeus, or of Themis, the parent of the Hours, or let him prove that the ever-naked graces can have a real, substantial existence. But he will not be able to show from any actions of theirs that these fictitious representations of the Greeks, which have the appearance of being invested with bodies, are really gods. And why should the fables of the Greeks regarding the gods be true, any more than those of the Egyptians, for example, who in their language know nothing of Nemosyne, mother of the nine muses, nor of Athemis, parent of the hours, nor of a Euphrosyne, one of the graces, nor of any other of these names? How much more manifest, and how much better than all these inventions, is it that, convinced by what we see in the admirable order of the world, we should worship the maker of it as the one author of one effect, and which, as being holy in harmony with itself, cannot on that account have been the work of many makers, and that we should believe that the whole heaven is not held together by the movements of many souls, for one is enough, which bears the whole of the non-wandering sphere from east to west, and embraces within it all things which the world requires and which are not self-existing. For all are parts of the world, while God is no part of the world. But God cannot be imperfect, as a part is imperfect. And perhaps profounder consideration will show that as God is not a part, so neither is he properly the whole, since the whole is composed of parts, and reason will not allow us to believe that the God who is over all is composed of parts, each one of which cannot do what all the other parts can. After this, he continues, quote, These herdsmen and shepherds concluded that there was but one God, named either the Highest, or Adonai, or the Heavenly, or Seboeth, or called by some other of those names which they delight to give this world, and they knew nothing beyond that. End quote and in a subsequent part of his work, he says that, quote, It makes no difference whether the god, who is over all things, be called by the name of Zeus, which is current among the Greeks, or by that which is in use among the Indians or Egyptians, end quote. Now, in answer to this, we have to remark that this involves a deep and mysterious subject, that, respecting the nature of names, it being a question whether, as Aristotle thinks, names were bestowed by arrangement, or, as the Stoics hold, by nature, the first words being imitations of things agreeably to which the names were formed and in conformity with which they introduced certain principles of etymology, or whether, as Epicurus teaches, differing in this form from the Stoics, names were given by nature, the first men having uttered certain words varying from the circumstances in which they found themselves. 
If, then, we shall be able to establish, in reference to the preceding statement, the nature of powerful names, some of which are used by the learned amongst the Egyptians, or by the Meiji among the Persians, and by the Indian philosophers called Brahmins, or by the Samanaeans and others in different countries, and shall be able to make out that the so-called magic is not, as the followers of Epicurus and Aristotle suppose, an altogether uncertain thing, but is, as though skilled in it to prove, a consistent system, having words which are known to exceedingly few. Then we say that the name Seboeth and Adonai and the other names treated with so much reverence among the Hebrews are not applicable to any ordinary created things, but belongs to a secret theology which refers to the framer of all things. These names, accordingly, when pronounced with that attendant train of circumstances which is appropriate to their nature, are possessed of great power, and other names, again, current in the Egyptian tongue, are efficacious against certain demons who can only do certain things, and other names in the Persian language have corresponding power over other spirits, and so on in every individual nation for different purposes. And thus it will be found that, of the various demons upon the earth to whom different localities have been assigned, each one bears a name appropriate to the several dialects of place and country. He, therefore, who has a nobler idea, however small, of these matters, will be careful not to apply differing names to different things, lest he should resemble those who mistakenly apply the name of God to lifeless matter, or who drag down the title of the good, from the first cause, or from virtue and excellence, and apply it to blind Plutus, and to a healthy and well-proportioned mixture of flesh and blood and bones, or to what is considered to be noble birth. And perhaps there is a danger as great as that which degrades the name of God, or of the good, to improper objects in changing the name of God according to a secret system, and applying these which belong to inferior beings to greater and vice versa. And I do not dwell on this, that when the name of Zeus is uttered, there is heard at the same time that the son of Kronos and Rhea and the husband of Hera and the brother of Poseidon, the father of Athene and Artemis, who is guilty of incest with his own daughter Persephone, or that Apollo immediately suggests the son of Leto and Zeus and the brother of Artemis, and half-brother of Hermes, and so, with all the other names invented by these wise men of Celsus, who are the parents of these opinions, and the ancient theologians of the Greeks, for what are the grounds for deciding that he should, on the one hand, be properly called Zeus, and yet on the other should not have Kronos for his father, and Rhea for his mother? And the same argument applies to all the others that are called gods. But this charge does not at all apply to those who, for some mysterious reason, refer the words Boeth or Adonai or any of the other names to the true God. And when one is able to philosophize about the mystery of names, he will find much to say respecting the titles of the angels of God, of whom one is called Michael and another Gabriel and another Raphael appropriately to the duties which they discharge in the world according to the will of the god of all things 
And a similar philosophy of names applies also to our Jesus, whose name has already been seen in an unmistakable manner to have expelled myriads of evil spirits from the souls and bodies of men. So great was the power which it exerted upon those from whom the spirits were driven out. And while still upon the subject of names, we have to mention that those who are skilled in the use of incantations relate that the utterance of the same incantation in its proper language can accomplish what the spell professes to do, but when translated into any other tongue, it is observed to become inefficacious and feeble, and thus it is not the thing signified, but the qualities and peculiarities of words which possess a certain power for this or that purpose. And so, on such grounds as these we defend the conduct of Christians, when they struggle even to death to avoid calling God by the name of Zeus, or to give him a name from any other language, for they either use the common name God indefinitely, or with some such addition as that of maker of all things, the creator of heaven and earth. He who sent down to the human race those good men to whose names that of God being added, certain mighty works are wrought among men, and much more besides might be said on the subject of names against those who think that we ought to be indifferent as to our use of them. And if the remark of Plato in the Philebus should surprise us when he says, quote, my fear, O Protagoras, about the names of the gods is no small one. End quote. Seeing Philebus in his discussion with Socrates had called pleasure a god, how shall we not rather approve the piety of the Christians who apply none of the names used in the mythologies to the creator of the world? And now enough on this subject for the present. But let us see the manner in which the Celsus, who professes to know everything, brings a false accusation against the Jews, when he alleges that, quote, they worship angels and are addicted to sorcery, in which Moses was their instructor, end quote. Now, in what part of the writings of Moses he found the lawgiver laying down the worship of angels, let him tell, who professes to know all about Christianity and Judaism, and let him show also how sorcery can exist among those who have accepted the Mosaic law and read the injunction, Quote, neither seek after wizards to be defiled by them. End quote. Moreover, he promises to show afterwards quote, how it was through ignorance that the Jews were deceived and led into error. End quote. Now, if he had discovered that the ignorance of the Jews regarding Christ was the effect of their not having heard the prophecies about him, he would show with truth how the Jews fell into error. But without any wish whatever that this should appear, he views as Jewish errors what are no errors at all. And Celsus, having promised to make us acquainted in a subsequent part of his work with the doctrines of Judaism, proceeds in the first place to speak of our Savior as having been the leader of our generation in so far as we are Christians, and say that, quote, A few years ago he began to teach this doctrine, being regarded by Christians as the Son of God, end quote. Now, with respect to this point, his prior existence a few years ago, we have to remark as follows. Could it have come to pass, without divine assistance, that Jesus, desiring during these years to spread abroad his words and teaching, should have been so successful that everywhere throughout the world not a few persons, 
Greeks, as well as barbarians, learned, as well as ignorant, adopted his doctrine so that they struggled even to death in its defense rather than deny it, which no one is ever related to have done for any other system. I indeed, from no wish to flatter Christianity, but from a desire thoroughly to examine the facts, would say that even those who are engaged in the healing of numbers of sick persons do not attain their object, the cure of the body, without divine help. And if one were to succeed in delivering souls from a flood of wickedness and excesses and acts of injustice and from a contempt of God, and were to show as evidence of such a result one hundred persons improved in their natures let us suppose the number to be so large no one would reasonably say that it was without divine assistance that he had implanted in those hundred individuals a doctrine capable of removing so many evils and if any one on a candid consideration of these things shall admit that no improvement ever takes place among men without divine help how much more confidently shall he make the same assertion regarding Jesus when he compares the former lives of many converts to his doctrine with their after-conduct, and reflects in what acts of licentiousness and injustice and covetousness they formerly indulged, until, as Celsus and they who think with him, allege, quote, they were deceived, end quote, and accepted a doctrine which, as these individuals assert, is destructive of the life of men, but who, from the time that they adopted it, have become in some way meeker, and more religious, and more consistent, so that certain among them, from a desire of exceeding chastity, and a wish to worship God with greater purity, abstain even from the permitted indulgences of lawful love. Any one who examines the subject will see that Jesus attempted and successfully accomplished works beyond the reach of human power. For although, from the very beginning, all things opposed the spread of his doctrine in the world, both the princes of the time and their chief captains and generals, and all, to speak generally, who were possessed of the smallest influence, and in addition to these, the rulers of the different cities, and the soldiers, and the people, yet it proved victorious as being the word of god the nature of which is such that it cannot be hindered and becoming more powerful than all such adversaries it made itself master of the whole of greece and a considerable portion of barbarian lands and converted countless numbers of souls to his religion and although among the multitude of converts to christianity the simple and ignorant necessarily outnumbered the more intelligent as the former class always does the latter Yet Celsus, unwilling to take note of this, thinks that this philanthropic doctrine, which reaches to every soul under the sun, is vulgar, and on account of its vulgarity and its want of reasoning power, obtained a hold only over the ignorant. And yet he himself admits that it was not the simple alone who were led by the doctrine of Jesus to adopt his religion, for he acknowledges that there were amongst them some persons of moderate intelligence and gentle disposition, who possessed of understanding and capable of comprehending allegories. And since, in imitation of a rhetorician, training a pupil, he introduces a Jew, who enters into a personal discussion with Jesus, and speaks in a very childish manner, altogether unworthy of the gray hairs of a philosopher, let me endeavor, to the best of my ability, to examine his statements, and show that he does not maintain, throughout the discussion, the consistency due to the character of a Jew, 
for he represents him disputing with Jesus and confuting him as he thinks on many points, and in the first place, he accuses him of having, quote, invented his birth from a virgin, end quote, and upbraids him with being, quote, born of a certain Jewish village, of a poor woman of the country, who gained her subsidence by spinning, and who was turned out of doors by her husband, a carpenter by trade, because she was convicted of adultery, that after being driven away by her husband, and wandering about for a time, she disgracefully gave birth to Jesus, an illegitimate child, who having hired himself out as a servant in Egypt, on account of his poverty, and having there acquired some miraculous powers, on which the Egyptians greatly pride themselves, returned to his own country, highly elated on account of them, and by means of these proclaimed himself a god. End quote. Now, as I cannot allow anything said by unbelievers to remain unexamined, but must investigate everything from the beginning, I give it as my opinion that all these things worthily harmonize with the predictions that Jesus is the Son of God. For birth is an aid towards an individual's becoming famous and distinguished and talked about when a man's parents happen to be in a position of rank and influence and are possessed of wealth and are able to spend it upon the education of their son and when the country of one's birth is great and illustrious. But when a man, having all these things against him, is able, notwithstanding these hindrances, to make himself known and to produce an impression on those who hear of him, and to become distinguished and visible to the whole world, which speaks of him as it did not do before, how can we help admiring such a nature as being both noble in itself, and devoting itself to great deeds, and possessing a courage which is not by any means to be despised? And if one were to examine more fully the history of such an individual, why should he not seek to know in what manner, after being reared up in frugality and poverty, and without receiving any complete education, and without having studied systems and opinions by means of which he might have acquired confidence to associate with multitudes, and play the demagogue, and attract to himself many hearers, he nevertheless devoted himself to the teaching of new opinions, introducing among men a doctrine which not only subverted the custom of the Jews, while preserving due respect for their prophets, but which especially overturned the established observances of the Greeks regarding the divinity. And how could such a person, one who had been so brought up, and who, as his calumniators admit, had learned nothing great from men, have been able to teach, in a manner not at all, to be despised, such doctrines as he did regarding the divine judgment, and the punishments that are to overtake wickedness, and the rewards that are to be conferred upon virtue, so that not only rustic and ignorant individuals were won by his words, but also not a few of those who were distinguished by their wisdom, and who were able to discern the hidden meaning in those more common doctrines as they were considered, which were in circulation, and which secret meaning enwrapped, so to speak, some more recondite signification still. The Seraphian in Plato, who reproaches Themistocles after he had become celebrated for his military skill, saying that his reputation was due not to his own merits, but to his good fortune in having been born in the most illustrious country in Greece, received from the good-natured Athenian, who saw that his native country did contribute to his renown, the following reply, quote, Neither would I, had I been a Seraphian, have been so distinguished as I am, nor would you have been a Themistocles, even if you had had the good fortune to be an Athenian. End quote. 
And now, our Jesus, who is reproached with being born in a village, and that not a Greek one, nor belonging to any nation wildly esteemed, and being despised as the son of a poor laboring woman, and as having, on account of his poverty, left his native country and hired himself out in Egypt, and being to use the instance already quoted, not only a Seraphian, as it were, a native of a very small and undistinguished island, but even, so to speak, the meanest of the Seraphians, has yet been able to shake the whole inhabited world not only to a degree far above what Themistocles the Athenian ever did, but beyond what even Pythagoras or Plato or any other wise man in any part of the world whatever or any prince or general ever succeeded in doing. Now, would not any one who investigated with ordinary care the nature of these facts be struck with amazement at this man's victory? with his complete success in surmounting by his reputation all causes that tended to bring him into disrepute, and with his superiority over all other illustrious individuals of the world. And yet it is a rare thing for distinguished men to succeed in acquiring a reputation for several things at once, for one man is admired on account of his wisdom, another for his military skill, and some of the barbarians for the marvellous powers of incantation, and some for one quality, and others for another. But not many have been admired and acquired a reputation for many things at the same time, whereas this man, in addition to his other merits, is an object of admiration both for his wisdom, and for his miracles, and for his power of government. For he persuaded some to withdraw themselves from their laws, and to secede to him, not as a tyrant would do, nor as a robber who arms his followers against men, nor as a rich man who bestows help upon those who come to him, nor as one of those who confessedly are deserving of censure, but as a teacher of the doctrine regarding the God of all things, and of the worship which belongs to him, and of all moral precepts which are able to secure the favor of the supreme God, to him who orders his life in conformity therewith. Now, to Themistocles, or to any other man of distinction, nothing happened to prove a hindrance to their reputation, whereas to this man, besides what we have already enumerated, and which are enough to cover with dishonor the soul of a man even of the most noble nature, there was that apparently infamous death of crucifixion, which was enough to efface his previously acquired glory, and to lead those who, as they who disavow his doctrine assert, were formerly deluded by him to abandon their delusion, and to pass condemnation upon their deceiver. End of chapters 21 through 30 of Against Celsus by Origen. Read by David Ronald.